my guest today spent over 28 years in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. And now that he's out, he works for a company called Cornbread Hustle as a criminal justice consultant. You see, my guest today didn't do time in prison. He started out as a 20-year-old correctional officer and throughout the years moved his way up in the ranks to senior warden over multiple units. Come on, today, I never thought I'd say this. Today, we're going to do a background check on retired warden Darren Wallace. Let's go! Have you or someone you know had your life turned upside down because of your past? Of course I have. Everyone does background checks now, which makes it hard to bounce back. What do you believe? I believe your background shouldn't hold you back. It, sh it should pay you back. This podcast will inspire you, motivate you, and inform you with everything you need to rise above your past and, and not be afraid to say, go, go ahead, check my background. My name is Jaden Gum, and this is Background Check. You already know. Let's go. You can check my background. I'm a forgiving felon, so tell them that I won't back down now. You can bet I won't live in regret. It's time to earn some respect. You are tuning in to Background Check. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Background Check Podcast. I'm your host, Jaden Gum. And here at Background Check, we believe your background shouldn't hold you back. It should pay you back. We are all about rising above whatever's happened to you in your background, whether it's abuse, whether it's, uh, you know, committing crimes and going to prison, whether it's addiction, no matter what it is, we believe that you can rise above your background. You can rise above a, a financial, horrible financial background. You can rise above uh, something happened in your life, a medical background. You had medical issues. We're going to have a guest on, you know, in, in a few weeks uh, that that battled COVID for a long time, but he rose above it, you know, but that's, that's in his background, uh, the struggle, physical struggle. He rose above it. We're all about sharing stories, and we're all about sharing stories of people who who help others rise above their background. And so thank you for listening. Thank you for making this podcast as popular as it is. As it is. Uh, everyone out here in the, in, in, in the free world, <laughs> I have to say free world now because we have a, a, a large listener base in prison, in jails. And thank you to all of you who spread the word in there. And thank you to all the new listeners in Texas. If you're a new unit anywhere that has it, a new jail, a new prison, anywhere in the, in the United States, write us and let us know uh, at Forgiven Felons. P.O. Box 4283. That's Forgiven Felons. P.O. Box 4283. And that's Cedar Hill, Texas. Cedar, like the tree, and then Hill. Cedar Hill, Texas. 75106. Give us a shout out. Let us know, uh, you know, um, if you listened to a specific episode and it impacted you. All right. Uh, I've been telling you all to write us in, write the show and let us know, but um, I haven't been giving you the address. So my apologies. So thank you for listening, and um, we got a, we, we have a great I – mean, I'll tell you what, some things that are happening in Forgiven Felons, which is who the show is brought to you by, Forgiven Felons, uh, we are going to be we're, – we're airing this on Friday, May 20th, but on, on Saturday, May 21st, we're going to be getting together with a bunch of people who were in the WIN unit in Texas and also went in as volunteers to minister – uh, to inmates at the Wind Unit in Texas, and they call it the Wind City Reunion, Wind City Warrior Reunion, and uh, I'm excited about that. They're gonna let me talk for a little bit, but um, but I love just reconnecting with everybody 
that was on the inside and seeing seeing their stories and encouraging them, lifting them up. So we're excited about that. Um, not much else is going on. Listen, um, again, write us and let us know if uh, if you're getting this. If you're a new unit, and you're just now getting it on your on your tablets, and um, we want you to be. We want you to listen to every one of them. You got to because there's going to be one of them that touches your heart more than any. Um, but before we go any further in the show, we do have a new sponsor. Uh, we've been telling you about them for the last three or four weeks. And listen, whether you're in prison or out, I mean, I know there's inmates in Idaho that that have uh, audio video experience. So when they get out, they're going to need jobs or they're going to need things done. But listen, RP Media, my friend Rob Price owns RP Media, and uh, they are a full service video production business. And they specialize in documentary, corporate training videos, promos, uh, educational training videos, podcasting, and they'll even build you a small little you know, video podcast set and studio if you if you need one, you know. Um, he's got, Rob has more than 25 years of um, media industry, including um, former CBN producer. CBN, you know what that is? The big channel on Christian Broadcasting Network. Uh, he's a screenwriter, author of The Blood Covenant, church media pastor and digital media arts professor. But he's most known for... Uh, in our world for producing the documentary forgiven felons and it is being shown worldwide now uh, on roku tv tubi tv and on the christian movie channel on youtube and uh it's 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 a really good three three episode series and uh you need to, you need to go watch it uh i just got a phone call the other day of somebody from canada who watched it so it's pretty neat if you haven't seen it yet. We're trying to get it get it on the on the tablets in prison too. So, but listen, Rob, I've known him for 16 years since I've been out of prison. He's amazing. He loves he loves the the podcast. He loves the ministry. Um, I used to coach his daughter in Bible quiz when I first got out of prison. So you know he trusts me, and, and uh, but I trust him. He he shot a commercial for one of the smoothie factories that I did when I first got out. So um, if if you need anything. Any type of video, audio stuff done, uh, RP Media is the, the people who call Rob. 214-354-6364. 214-354-6364. Or you can email him at Rob Price. That's R-O-B-P-R-I-C-E, the number six, Rob Price 6 at gmail.com. And listen, if you tell me you mentioned, uh, mentioned that you heard it on the show, background check podcast then uh, he's gonna give you five percent off and that's pretty good because if you get a if you get a, a a job that's worth five grand you know that's gonna be pretty it's gonna be a good discount so well i don't know what you're waiting for call right now you know you out there you out there you who've been needing a, a project done and you don't have time to do it and you have the money to get it done rp media is the people you need to call so today man my guest again background check we're all about Sharing stories of people who've risen above their past and their background, but also people who help people rise above anything in their past. So today, uh, man, I got a new friend. I got a new friend. His name is Darren Wallace, and he works for my other friend, uh, Sherry Garcia from Cornbread Hustle. And this whole triangle of how everybody met and how we all know each other is incredible. Uh, I read a book by Damon West called the change agent he just got out like in 2017 18 something like that and 
and it's an incredible book. And then next thing I know on social media, I see him meeting with Sherry Garcia from Cornbread Hustle. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Well, we interviewed Sherry Garcia for corn, from, you know, Cornbread Hustle episode last year. And so that they got to know each other. And then, and then all of a sudden, uh, an ex warden, a retired warden, uh, that used to be over Damon on one of the styles unit. He, um, he was looking for a job. And so Damon connected him with Sherry and now he's the criminal justice consultant and community engagement person for a cornbread hustle. And he spent 28 years. He started as a 20 year old kid and, uh, he's my age. He's 51. I didn't realize that until we did the episode. And so, uh, but I just, man, we, we sit and talk for an hour and 15, 20 minutes and we had a great time. I got to hear, I got to ask him questions. I've always wanted to ask a warden. I never thought I would be interviewing a warden. So it's pretty cool. Um, but it's just a great guy. And to know that he wasn't your typical warden who didn't give a crap about the inmates. He, he really, uh, poured into people and gave you, gave you an opportunity uh, like Damon says in his book, The Change Agent, it says, this warden said to me, I'm going to give you a rope, and you're either going to pull yourself up or you're going to hang yourself with it. And Damon pulled himself up. And uh, so now they're friends on the outside uh, since he retired. So pretty neat. Uh, so here's my here's my um, interview with retired TDCJ warden Darren Wallace. Warden Darren Wallace, welcome to Background Check Podcast. Thank you. All right, now I know you're retired. You're not a warden anymore. Right. Uh, but uh, to me, uh, I got friends that don't work for TDCJ anymore, but I call them by their TDCJ rank, you know, like sergeant, captain, whatever. So it's kind of like a Marine or whatever. Once a, once a, a an officer, always an officer. So um, I never thought I would, would be saying, Warden, welcome to the show, but here I am. And uh, thank you for being here. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity. So as you know, um, background check is all about interviewing people that have risen above their background, whatever that background is. We've had people that, you know, have had challenges in their past that have nothing to do with criminal. Um, you know, and then we also help people, uh, we, we like to interview people like yourself who are in a position and work, worked for people, uh, work to help navigate life for these people that have backgrounds. And so, you uh, definitely epitomize helping people with backgrounds because you you were in corrections for uh, 28 years. Right, 28 years with the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. So we have a guy at our transitional house right now that did 28 years on the inside. Ah. So I have a friend who did 20, two friends that did 28 years, you know, and uh, when did you, when did you parole? I mean, not parole, but uh, <laughs> retire? It felt like I did when I gave that phone up. Uh, my actual last physical work day, I think, was January 21st of 2020. 2020. All right. He got out. He parole. He made parole or was actually released December 4th, 2020. Okay. So, uh, so yeah. Pretty we were neat. contemporary. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I make the joke sometimes, you know, with the TDC numbers. And you'd see somebody say, well, you know, I've got a 95 number. I've got a 102 number. Man, I've got like a 58. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So when did you start? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in corrections. Uh, I know you got a wife. Tell us about right. your family. Honor them. Uh, and just tell us, kind of go back. Let's, let's, t- let's talk about, you know, uh, well, 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 first of all, time out. No, I like to do this first. Before we get into the background, uh, tell us what you do now. Okay. Now 
I am working with a company called Cornbread Hustle in Dallas, Texas. And Cornbread Hustle is a second chance staffing agency. We specialize or focus on helping people with criminal backgrounds or people who are in recovery find employment because employment is one of the big three barriers to reentry. Yeah. And next to housing, probably the absolute toughest. So we try to get people employment with companies that have benefits once they become a permanent employee at that company and have a career ladder and a future. So they're not working just some entry level job. And that's job. so important because it is because so many halfway houses and so many different places will just try to get these guys and gals in nine to twelve dollar an hour per, uh, warehouse jobs that have no ladder at all. No, and that's 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 not good for them. Not at all. If there is no future, then there's no incentive. Yeah, you know that incentive has to exist in order for the person to be motivated to excel at that career and to want to do better and move on. The people who are most successful start at a job that gives them an opportunity to immediately see something financially where, well, I'm not going to say it pays so much they don't struggle, but that it lessens the struggle, that right. it lessens the worry that they face every day. You know, I firmly believe that many people reoffend because of the barriers that exist. Oh, absolutely. They don't necessarily want to reoffend, but when they start looking at options and they don't have many, they go for the option that worked for them before. Even though ultimately it was a failure and they became incarcerated, they were able to provide for themselves or whoever else they're responsible for through whether it's selling drugs, stealing, whatever it was they were doing. And it's easy to go back to that old cycle if you don't have a pathway in front of you. Yeah. And, you know, and what you just said is very important. You said most people don't want to reoffend. No. And a lot of people think they don't think that way. The general average plain Jane Joe, average Joe, they just think that the recidivism, national recidivism, including federal and state, is almost 80%. It might be over 80% now. I don't know. Within a three- to five-year period. Right. So they just think, well, these guys want to keep reoffending because what other reason would you go back to prison? And right. they don't understand that most of them – most of them have made a plan in their, in their, in their mind during their incarceration to get out and stay out. But because of limited job resources, uh, low pay, low income, uh, maybe bad environment at home that they didn't know they were paroling to, or maybe some that they knew they were prone to, but didn't have a choice. Right. Um, horrible, um, state funded, uh, transitional houses that tend to have a lot more drugs and, and fights than prison. Uh, right. and that's just a fact. Um, you know, we get calls from the, the DTC, the Dallas transitional house a lot and other, uh, El Paso and all these, and, and, you know, it's just, it's tough, but they don't want to reoffend. No, but because all. of their environment, because of their, uh, their, their limits on job opportunities. And now the jobs are starting to open up 10 years ago when we started our transitional house, we could we could find them a place to live after they graduated our transition house program, but we couldn't find them any more jobs better than eight to $10 an hour. Right. That has reversed now. Now we could find them great jobs, 15 to $20 an hour. I mean, even with cornbread hustle, the job, the jobs are great. You know, oh, even yeah. some, even some top middle and top management positions, but we, now it's flipped and we can't find them in even places that we had full solid connections with have changed their mind. Uh, connection with personal landlords, um, either they're full all the time, they don't have any openings, or they've changed their mind as well. And it's just tough. 
Well, and they get priced out in this market yep. too, yep. you know, because landlords can raise rent and get paid. Yeah. They can actually have the expectation that raising the rent is going to be successful and they're going to put people in there. And so a lot of times we're pricing folks out. You and know, it's tough because even in the, in the housing market that we're in, yeah, the landlords almost have no choice to follow the tax, the tax rates. And oh yeah, the know, taxes the, are going appraisals up. Are, are just oh, horrendous. I know. So the tax, if the taxes are based on the appraisals, uh, the landlords have no, they have no choice, you no, know, they and do because so, so they have to stay in business also. Yeah. You know, it, business isn't a charity. Yeah, that's and true. So, True, true, true. But I know when I opened my tax appraisal this year, I, I almost fainted. <laughs> I was like, real. "How did that happen?" Um, so yeah, because if you were to try to, if we were to try to turn around and sell our house for that amount, you know, even in the really good right. seller's market, uh, I, it would almost be impossible. You know, it would. So, so all right, man. Um, let's go back a little bit. Um, you, you're married. How long yes. have you been married? We have been married. It will be 27 years in June. Congratulations. Coming up. All it right. So is. let's go back to those younger years. I mean, obviously, uh, you seem like a, uh, this is, and I mean, this is a compliment, a straight-laced guy. So right. I don't know if you had any issues in life growing up uh, before college, but I kind of just yeah. know a little bit about your story right when you start college. Uh, tell us about that. Maybe how you met your wife and how y'all got, con you know, um, sure. how you got imprisoned by corrections. <laughs> You know, not many people grow up wanting to enter corrections as a career. There's folks True. folks out there who do, but it wasn't wasn't in my sights. I was going to Sam Houston State University and majoring in what criminal justice. Okay. I wanted to be a DPS trooper. That right. was actually my goal. Mom and dad were paying for school and apartment, that kind of thing. And of course, being a normal twenty year old, I wanted more and wanted spending money. So. Going through the criminal justice center one day, I saw a sign saying, now hiring for correctional officers. And they ran a truncated academy, a short academy. Okay. In 1991, that was between the spring semester and the summer session. Okay. So two and a half weeks, basically. Uh, knocked out the TDCJ training academy and got assigned to the Ellis unit. Wow. I was 20 years old. Now, I know there were times when the Ellis unit was a pretty rocking unit. So what was the temperature of the unit when you first started? You know, on the Ellis unit when I got there, it wasn't like it was in the early 80s. You know, it okay. was... it was Tampered of, down a little bit. Yeah, it was kind of bloody back then. But in 1991, the Ellis unit, the general population, was really kind of what I thought was an older crowd then. You know, I was 20 years old, and most of the inmates walking around were in their mid-30s all the way up to elderly. Gotcha. Um, you know, I actually worked on death row, which was at Ellis at the time. It didn't move to Polanski till several, several years later. And death row, of course, has its own demographic. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just, just depends on who got a capital murder charge and which County they came from and whether that County pursued death sentences like Harris County tended to Harris County made up the most of them. Um, smaller counties didn't have a whole lot of guys. So it was mostly city guys because yeah. smaller counties have trouble affording especially back yeah. then running a death penalty case, you know, it's extremely, we got expensive. an interview coming up with a gentleman named uh, Jim Buffington. I know Jim very well. And uh, I think his dad was on the Ellis unit during that he time. Was, he was on the Ellis unit while I was. Okay. Um, so I didn't know him, know him, but yeah. I, I knew who his father was when I was a correctional officer. Yeah. Um, I actually met Jim with Bridges life when I was the warden at the Torres unit. Okay. And, 
quit, I just started talking to him, and it turns out that my brother-in-law and he are very good friends. Oh, wow. I had no idea. It was you know, a <laughs> small world kind of thing. Jim and I have, have remained friends. Yeah. He's and a good guy. He is. The story's incredible, man. It is. It's coming up on the Father's Day weekend episode. Is it? Yep. Oh, so wow. It's, it's, oh, it's you know, impactful. I just saw the video they did with him and his yep. brothers. Yep. And it absolutely was was worth watch. Yeah, it and is. His story and what he's done to make the most of that yeah. and become such a bright light and positive influence oh, on yeah. people is just miraculous. Yep. And maintaining his faith and just that's feet. crazy yeah I'm, I'm sitting there listening i mean i watched the i watched the video when it first came out but then i'm interviewing him and i'm just i'm hearing these things and and when when it's an interview one-on-one like this you get a little different perspective than when right. you're trying to talk for the camera and i'm just like in my mind i'm like oh my gosh i don't know especially that moment when his dad looked at him and said i did it and she deserved it oh yeah oh i would have been i would have been nuts you know i <laughs> i don't know that i could have taken the the road that he yeah, did yeah that is such especially when he finds out that he was on the hit list too the, yeah well now he now he did admit that's, <laughs> that that at that interview with the with the actual killer he did admit that he had to leave the room yeah because he, in his mind he wanted to he wanted to jump across that table and and that took a lot of guts to admit that too um but then then to know just the restoration that has all taken place since then and oh then, i know and then the 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 funeral ser- or the memorial service at at the at the unit Prison. for the warden. I mean the warden. Well, first of all, the warden and I think he said the chaplain came to their private funeral. Right. Which does that usually happen? I mean, no. how many funerals have you been to? Uh, By choice, not many. Okay. Uh, you but, know, I, but to have a memorial service at the unit mm-hmm. for a person that's already been taken off, claimed, and buried somewhere else. Right. How common is that? You know, you know, that's also a comment, though, on the power of God, yeah. because despite what Jim's father had done, he still found found restoration. Yeah. Salvation. Yep. And was able to pour into other people. And that impact, while what he did was horrendous and there's no excuse for it um, there at the end, he had yeah. he had impacted multiple people yeah. in a positive way. And from speaking from a warden. Is that the mindset, the goal in the mindset of all wardens to see that, yes, we want these guys to get justice for what happened, but we also want to see them changed? I would like to say every single warden feels <laughs> that way. Um, I'm sure there's some who don't. For me, I can, I can speak about my personal, personal journey. Well, you know what? Let's talk about your, your mindset when you first got in. When you first started working, what was your mindset? These guys were... Were they all guilty? Because we know they're not all guilty because there's exonerations that happen all the time. Right. So was your mindset that of they're all guilty and these are all bad people, not bad, not good people that made bad choices, but these are just bad people. What was your mindset? Yeah, as a 20-year-old. Yeah, that's an interesting question. As a 20-year-old stepping onto death row, I really, and I, I would probably feel that way if I went back, it would be hard to really concentrate too hard on the individual story of each guy. Yeah. On death row, you understand that the people you're dealing with committed capital murder, you know, a murder horrendous enough or by the, by the penal code horrendous enough to get the ultimate punishment. And while certainly there were some on death row when I, when I was working there that have been exonerated and have gone on, um, even, uh, uh, well, not, not back at that time, but even what's her name, Lucia, 
You right. just got to stay. Right. It looks like she's she might be exonerated one day. At least the evidence shows that. Right. Um, but but yeah, there you know. And then Brian Stevenson, Equal Justice Initiative. He he talks about in in the nation of of, of America, one in nine people who are executed are actually innocent. And wow. and they find that out usually sometimes po- posthumous. You know, they they realize right. oh yeah we 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 executed an innocent person. Well, uh, Texas did have that happen. A guy that was on death row while I was working there and then was executed several years later. And it turns out that he had not started the fire that yeah. killed his kids. That he When you hear stuff like that, you know, back then mm-hmm. is when you heard it. So what, what, what goes through your mind then? Does your mindset change at all? Or does it do anything to the landscape of your A little, mindset? you know, I'm not a politician. And I think that the death penalty is primarily a political issue. I don't believe that it is a wide deterrent. Yeah. It, it's the law of the land yeah. in Texas. It is yeah. what it is. So I never had any compunction about working there. Um, like I said, the vast majority of the people there are murderers. Yep. And you know that going yep. in. Yep. Um, and some of them seem like normal people when you talk to them. You would never guess it. Whereas others, you absolutely knew that there were. <laughs> you can see. And he was in the right place. Yeah. Um, you know, I think my views on the death penalty kind of changed. The innocence potential innocence of people certainly impacts, but with the introduction in Texas of the life without parole possibility for a capital murder, watching 20, 21 year old young men come into prison for capital murder with that life without parole and really envisioning if they live to a normal lifespan, you know, if they make it 78 years old and they went in as 20 year old, that's 58 years in a very tough, very negative, most of the time environment. Is that, wor- is that worse than the death penalty? I think it is in many ways, you know, because you you are watching life go on for everybody else with the absolute knowledge that it will never go on for you. Yeah. You know, you will you may accomplish good things in prison. Uh, field ministers are a good example yeah. of that. If you've done anything or looked at the field minister program, yep. that those guys could potentially benefit many others through a program such as that. But as far as their their ability to have life be on their own, to have a hands-on impact on their family yeah. or people they could have had a positive impact on is probably worse than, you know, basically going to sleep later. Yeah. Um, so I'm my, so you're young, uh, you just start out and you're on death row and, and you, you think it's such a great job that you, uh, meet your girlfriend and, and you marry her and say, come work with me in TDCJ. Sort of. <laughs> uh, we actually met going to Sam Houston. She did not work for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice then. Um, when I was 23 years old, uh, summer of 1994, I made Sergeant at the McConnell unit and she moved to Beeville, Texas with me. And the Navy had left Beeville, which is where the Garza units now right. are, the yep. Chase Field Air Base, um, Naval Base. No jobs, period, in Beeville, Texas. Wow. So TDCJ was the option. So she actually started in the count room at the Garza West unit, and that is how she got into TDCJ. Nice. And then she's retired as well. She retired from TDCJ last awesome. year. Awesome, awesome. Thank you both for all your service. Thank you. All these years in in. Uh, in trying to make our community safe, uh, the inmates safe, and uh, to facilitate as much rehabilitation as possible. And uh, thank you for that. So, all right, man, you start moving up the ranks. Uh, what, what can you tell us about, you know, just, you know, some of your 
any any stories any crazy stories happen to you when you're you know fresh fresh in the the water back then you know there were a lot of things that happened throughout my career and unfortunately usually the good things don't stick with you right you know some of the funnier things stick with you normally the worst things that you see are the ones that stick around you know for me it was being first on the scene when one of my correctional officers was murdered mm. when, I, when I was a lieutenant that was you know that was a rough day yeah. that was 1999 and uh, that was uh Daniel what, Nagel was the officer's what, name okay and that yeah. was at the McConnell unit. McConnell unit you know he was the first officer to have been murdered by an inmate since the early 80s I believe Minnie Houston had been the one before that at the Ellis unit trustee camp is where she was murdered so it was a new experience for TDCJ and it was certainly a, a life forming experience for me I was 29 years old first one there and you know, he was, he had already died once I got there. Yeah. So incidents like that kind of stick around. How does, how, how do you as a husband and navigate that conversation with your wife and not just say, man, we need to get you to find a new career that there's an aspect of prison that when you walk in every day, you know, yeah. that that possibility exists. You can't kind of like any law enforcement. True. And possibly, I hate to say this, but it, it is possibly safer to work in prison than it is to work in a convenience store in a lot yeah. of neighborhoods. Yeah, I agree. And it is certainly safer walking the halls of a prison as a staff member than it is walking through a dark parking lot in a city. Yeah, you're right. So I felt confident. I knew the people she worked with every day. I felt, and I know her own ability, and and she is no shrinking violet. <laughs> um, so we worried about each other. But it didn't didn't overwhelm our lives. Yeah, you also become very accustomed to having tough days sometimes when you yeah. work when you work on some of those more active units. You know, in Texas at the time, back in the '90s, McConnell was one of those. McConnell Cofield, um, several of the older, more established units were those kind of places. Yeah, I know in the early 2000s when I was uh, working for Doug Drutke who we're, we're still trying to get on the show. Uh, I, I was in charge of shredding documents that were over six months or whatever. Right. And uh, one day I was shredding documents uh, that were labeled. Um, uh, it was serious incidents. Serious incidents report. Serious incidents, yeah. And so I was, you know, just shred them, you know, but I'm, I'm just a person that's curious. I don't know if I'm like, you know, was breaking any laws back then, but as I'm, as I'm shredding them, I'm just noticing the units. Oh, yeah. And there were... French Robertson, All Red, McConnell, McConnell Conley. Conley, all those, they were all, they had the most yes. serious incident uh, reports. And whether it's, you know, whether it's uh, riots, whether it's, um, you know, uh, uh, firearms discharging, whatever, you know, that, that uh, there was a, yeah, it was crazy. You know, many units were opened for the purpose of housing the more violent uh, offenders. Yeah. The 22... 50 prototypes, which is your McConnell, Conley, yep. Allred, Robertson, Michael. Those units were designed with the with the idea of being able to contain serious incidents. Yeah. So you're just by the type of fender you put on that unit. You're going to expect a certain amount. You expect a certain amount of incidents. Yeah. It's not that the incident happened. It for us, you know, inside it is what failures happened before the incident to facilitate it. Right. What did we do wrong that allowed it to happen? Um, and by what we did wrong, I don't mean 
somebody intentionally did right. something wrong. I mean, what did we miss? There what, was a, what did we miss? What did we miss in this right. whole? There's a breakdown yeah, somewhere. Yeah. Something, either a process was missed. Because there's tells. There's tells big time when something's about to happen. Without there's a doubt. A, yeah. Without the, a doubt. The environment, the temperature, you could just tell. I mean, even in myself and my pods that I was in, you know, you wake up one day and you're like, okay, it just something's feels going different. on. Yeah. Something's going on, whether it's something with the guard, something in our own pod, something's going on. You know? And the more experienced you become, the better, better you become at that. You know, you can walk by a rec yard and know it's a normal day at rec or like, nah, let's get some more people over here and start doing some searches. Cause These guys that doesn't are look usually right. hanging out over here, you know, 364 days of the year, but they're over here today. What's going right. on? Right. Or suddenly it's not, you'll always have some, some kind of integra- integration yeah. on a rec yard or in a day room while those barriers exist in there and people do segregate themselves yeah. by, by racial lines sometimes it is a lot less common than it was years and years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. But if you walk by a rec yard and suddenly there is absolutely no mixture, it's time to time yep. to see what's going on. Yep. You look at a day room and everybody is sitting near the walls, no, time to see what's happening because there is a problem. Yep. It's a different – the more ex- – the more experienced you become in that environment, the more you can feel it. Yeah. You, of course, living in it has a whole different feel because you absolutely know the temperature of where you live every day yeah. and what is normal and what isn't. As correctional officers, especially in today's world where the correctional officers are just so new, having a veteran officer may mean you have somebody with a year as opposed to when I started, the people who trained me had 15, 20 years. Mm. And a new, new officer was absolutely new. And they considered you new for a couple of years. Yeah, you, it, they. It was a hard, hard group to become a part of sometimes. Yeah. So, so to, let me ask you this. So, when I was in prison, well, which was 2003 when I went in, 2003 to 2006, uh, there wasn't. I was on five different units, and there wasn't any unit that I was on that had faith-based dorms. Right. And so I know they were just getting started during that time in the early 2000s at some unit, maybe Hutchins here in Dallas. Cause I know they've been around a long time, but when, what unit were you at when a faith-based dorm was first presented the idea to you? What did you think about it? Did you think, Oh, this is stupid. This is, or this could work. Where was your mindset? You know, uh, it's, it's going to take extra people, extra staff, you know, cause I know a lot of times most wardens will would love to have as many outside volunteers coming in for rehabilitation purposes, but it also takes a, some extra staff to make sure all that happens. So where was your mindset when you first heard the, the term, the phrase faith-based storm? And what did you think about it? I was actually a major at Conley the first time that I had personal involvement with faith-based storms because they did spread and some of the larger units were, were slower to start them. I was actually the general population major when we started it at Conley. And we started in four building D-Pod, I believe, uh, D-Pod one section. The faith-based dorm per se wasn't anything I was worried about because I I really think that guys who go to whatever religious service they choose to go to and take it seriously and are trying to live by that faith are just much easier to manage inside a yeah, a correctional environment. My problem was was more trying to maintain normalcy because some people would have a tendency I'm looking at it from a security side. Right would tend to see it as, oh, those are the good guys. Whereas sometimes you get one that's not, yep. that makes his way in there. In fact, I had, because faith-based dorms are not just Christian dorms. Yep. So you'll have Christians, you'll have Muslims. Um, 
depending on the unit, you'll have some Buddhists, Buddhists or some Wiccan, some Wiccan. <laughs> yep. So anybody, any faith is welcome to join those dorms if they meet all the criteria. And so some of what I encountered were people not wanting to live in the cell with somebody of another religion. And I would get, you know, there's prison vernacular of when someone's loved one calls the warden and we'd refer to him as mama calls. <laughs> and mama calls can, can be wonderful because if mama's on your side and you have a good relationship with her, then you can solve a lot of problems yeah. because most guys still listen to their mom or their grandmother. But when the mama calls, when they, you will get some who, as soon as somebody says, you know, it's hard down here, they start calling. And they, would, they were trying to manipulate cell moves yeah. so that they could live with who they wanted. And so that took a hands-on approach. I actually went down with a verse from the Bible, a verse from the Quran, a verse from the Torah and, uh, about loving your brother. <laughs> and then it sounds kind of conceited and terrible to say, but I said, hey, there's also a verse from the book of Wallace. And y'all are going to get along or you're going to move. And that's pretty much how this is going to go, guys. And that stopped some of that. Yeah. The vast majority of faith-based dorms, once they were established, you had that sort of thing. But when you got the, got that worked out and the environment becomes correct, it can influence throughout the unit. In fact, that's what you're wanting is people graduate some yeah. of those faith-based programs yeah. and move them into other parts of the unit that, you know, kind of take Damon West line, you've, you've created a coffee bean. Yep. And that guy can impact those around him through his attitude through just witnessing or however he tends to show his faith or, or educate other people about it. So you can calm some areas down through that process of faith-based dorms. So I firmly believe in them and they are as good and as effective as the volunteers who are involved in it because most religious programming in today's prisons won't run without volunteers because of funding and other reasons and just, the sheer number you couldn't afford to get right. 20,000 people coming into statewide prisons as chaplains. So that's a workforce that that is unpaid as far as monetarily. You know, they're getting some reward out yeah. of it. But that creates an environment that's safer and more manageable, which prison wardens are extremely concerned about their units being safe. You don't... Right. You don't hear good news about prison very often. You know, it's it's pretty close society, so they don't advertise the things that they have done well and that are working very often. But you hear about the bad things as yeah. soon as they happen. I think some of that's changing. You know, with social media, I mean, they're posting a lot of they are. good videos and good stuff that they're doing, and I think I think that's changing. I think it's I think it's helping too. You know, because because when it when all you see is bad and all you hear is bad, you already knew bad, bad was in prison anyway. Right. But you know, if, if, if all you see and all you, then you're out here and you're looking on from the outside in and all you hear about or see about is bad, then you're, you're expecting a bad person to get out of prison. And you that's are. just not always the case. Exactly. It impacts public perception of the MA population and people trying to reenter society. And it impacts the prison system's ability to do business effectively because people's perceptions toward the staff and administration of those prisons is has been formed in a negative way through the media they've seen, the stories they've heard. And when you start a conversation with somebody already if already believing they're bad, confirmation bias t- takes over and it's oh, just yeah. easy 
to convince yourself that whatever answer you're given is either a lie or just trying to mislead you or paint a pretty picture when if you're if you go in with an open mind and if your perception hasn't been curved or formed in such a way that you immediately believe that then you can see the positive things that are going on and things that need to happen inside prisons yeah. that are not prison administration based the beyond the leadership of that prison system and really are in the hands of who you elect and who's sitting in your state legislature or your federal Congress. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So what, what was your, uh, I guess, I don't know if there's like written policy or you're just an understanding, uh, underlying policy of correction as a warden, as mm-hmm. when you, when you began to rise the ranks and you had people under you, um, and we'll talk about your position, but, but when you were in authority, what was your position and your stance on, uh, correction officers actually themselves pouring into the inmates with positive, positive words, treating them in a way that that provokes rehabilitation instead of provokes anger. Um, what was your mindset on that? You know, like, did you, did you participate in actual individual? Let me give you an example. I, I had an, uh, a correction officer one time just come to me and pulled me to the side. I thought I was in trouble. And he goes, gum, why are you smiling all the time? And, you know, and I had an opportunity to tell him about my faith and my journey and why, why I'm smiling in there. Um, and then he began to encourage me, you know? Right. And I, I mean, it didn't happen very often in the three years I was in, it didn't happen very often. And he almost did it in a way that it was like, he wanted to make it look like he was getting onto me, the, the inmate perception. Right. You know, because if, if the inmates see me talking to a guard, you know, they're going to be like, Hey, what's, yeah. what are you, who are you snitching on? You exactly. Know? Suddenly got jacket. <laughs> so he That's... was, he was trying to protect us both by like doing some little cover yelling first, not yelling, but talk loud. You right. Know? But then, then he just kind of paused and he's like, why are you always smiling? You know? And then he just had this candid conversation with me. He's like, he's like, I don't see a lot of inmates that, that smile all the time in here. Like you do. And he said, and, and a lot of times people come back because, you know, they didn't find a way to be happy in here. So they didn't find a way to be happy out there. Right. Now they're coming back because of their. And so, you know, what did, did you frown on, on, on doing it yourself and also on people, correction officers? I mean, obviously you don't want to establish relationships, especially opposite sex, but how did you, I don't know, kind of, did you encourage it? Because man, one word from an officer can change an inmate's life. And you know that firsthand. Oh yeah, no doubt. How do you, where do you draw the line? How do you stay, stay employed and do it? You know, and, and uh, you know, cause I know there are some lines that you cross that you, you, you have to let people go, um, you know, but. At the correctional officer level, you know, the correctional officer has the most hands-on day-to-day interaction with the inmate population. So at the correctional officer level, a lot of it depended on the individual correctional officer and their maturity and their experience. Right. When you have a new group of officers coming in, you really do not encourage them to become counselors. Right. You want them to learn the basics of security. You want them to learn how to recognize games that get played, yeah. how manipulation begins, how to counter that manipulation. And as they become more experienced, then they're much more welcome to have that kind of interaction. That's good. But 
you also tell them there's absolutely nothing wrong if somebody says good morning to saying good morning back. Or if they ask how you're doing that day, you say, I'm fine. How are you doing today? Because it's a people business. Right. For me, you know, starting off at the Ellis unit as a 20-year-old on death row, I didn't have a whole lot of personal conversations with the inmates on death row. And it wasn't out of fear, but out of professionalism. Because I, I was really aware of the lines that existed. And if the, if the population knows you don't cross those lines, your interactions with them really become easier because True. they quit trying to manipulate as much. And if they have a legitimate problem, you listen to that problem and you get them to where they need to be to fix that problem, because most problems are out of a correctional officer's hands. You know, it's going to take the chaplain or the, the uh, classification department or somebody else. But if you can direct them, help them get there, help them navigate that, that is just as impactful sometimes. Yeah. Now, as people progress through the rank structure, your more personal interactions become more regular with a lot of the inmates. You know, you almost always miss the guys in the middle. Yeah. The ones who are doing well, keep their head down, don't draw attention to themselves. It's easy to miss those guys. And most of them want to be missed. So that yep. I'm not saying that's all the way a bad thing. Right. Because they're navigating prison on their own. They've got their own thing going on. Um, they're not seeking help, although good mornings, that kind of thing, still positive, little positive affirmations aren't, aren't bad. But the ones you really know as a correctional officer, as a sergeant, lieutenant, captain, major warden, are the really bad ones, the ones who cause the most problems, the ones you suspect are involved in the drugs and cell phones and that kind of thing that go on in prison, and the ones who are just exceptional. Right. Because they always stand out. And many times in this sounds kind of jaded, but many times the ones who were really bad worried me less than some of the exceptional ones. Yeah. Because I get it. You know, if you want to manipulate somebody, one of the best ways to do it is to make them comfortable. Yep. And people become comfortable around, around things that they're familiar with. People who behave more like they do. You know, the guy telling me F you, um, you know, close where he custody, stands. I know where he is, <laughs> you know, where he's at. And yep. Most of the time he knows where I stand and, and you can actually have a pretty pretty workable relationship right. because you understand that yeah. line exists. Whereas it becomes a little more blurred for, especially for the lower level correctional staff with the inmates who go out of their way to be helpful. I always warn them, don't worry so much about the guy that just, just gives you a dirty look every time he walks by because you feel he doesn't like police. Worry about the guy that's trying to bring you a cup of ice when you haven't asked for it. So good. That's the one you really <laughs> start worrying about. But as you become more experienced with people and your, your BS detector gets a little bit better, yeah, you can navigate those sort of things more successfully, I guess. As a warden, I had a lot more opportunity to have large-scale impact on individuals rather than just the day-to-day -day life's talk, a little talk bit about easier. That. In what way? Talk about the field minister program, which is one of the best things TDCJ Absolutely. has ever embraced. I, um, I was actually the first warden who ever requested field ministers on my units. Um, I had occasion to be at an event that Mr. Collier, the executive director, was at one day. And he said, hey, warden, is there anything I can do for you? I'm not one of those people who's immediately going to jump up and go, hey, yeah, you can do something for me. You know, I'm kind of far from home out here in Hondo, Texas, uh, although we loved Hondo. I was more, you know, the Torres unit's a tough place. Yeah. You've got a lot of youngsters there, 18 to 25-year-old offender population, uh, 
a lot of gang membership sort of thing. So I said, how about some field ministers? Give me some guys who can come in and have credibility because they've got the same experiences. And most of those field ministers have some pretty serious crimes. They're doing a lot of time. So they get credibility with them. And Torres was not on the list to get any field ministers from the graduating class that was coming up. And Mr. Collier decided since I asked and nobody else had that he made that happen for the Torres unit and not for me, but for the Torres unit, because he really, he's all the flack he takes for anything going on. Um, I think he's probably the best executive director TDCJ's ever had. Wow. And he gave me those field ministers, gave the facility those field ministers. And my approach to that was I went to the chapel to the offenders that I knew were serious about their faith and about wanting it to be a better place and they and wanting people to not make the same mistakes or stay in prison or come back repeatedly. And so I implemented when I got the field ministers on the unit, I assigned an inmate to them who was familiar with the unit. So they toured them around rather than me. They introduced them to the various people that in the population that they need to know who they are. Yeah. And that person not worried that they know, whereas if I know who's running what, they worry a little more. So it would be uncomfortable for me to try to do that. Yeah. And by doing that, by creating that that dynamic, those field ministers gain credibility a lot more quickly yeah. than they would That's have so good. if they just tried yeah. to do it themselves. So that made a huge impact. Yeah. It did. And we felt it on the unit. You know, when you have guys that you're used to having to having to call a bunch of additional staff so that he knows that the fight's not worth it and, and gives up and gets handcuffed because he's having a bad day or got bad news to he gets bad news and tells the CEO, I want to see a field minister. That's huge. Yes. That yes. for for the safety of all the other offenders, the safety of the staff, for for just the daily operation of the unit and yeah, getting pe- getting so people where they need to be on time. So you know, because one bad incident and you're hours behind suddenly. So real quick for somebody listening sure. that doesn't know anything about prison, doesn't know what a field minister is, right. does, what what class do they take, where do they take it, and then how do they get decided, how does it decide for them to go out into another prison? So field ministers, it's actually the Heart of Texas Foundation, and I believe it's the Southwestern Baptist Seminary, work together, and they provide a four-year theological education, accredited college degree, bachelor's degree, and at what was the Darrington unit, and I'm not sure what they've renamed it, honestly, but they go through a four-year college program and they get a degree. Once they've done that, they are assigned to various units within TDCJ where they have access to most of the facility and are able to hold services, counsel. They're effective in hospice situations and really kind of act as chaplains mm. for so, the for the inmates and they have some credibility that a normal staff member wouldn't right, have right excuse me because they are one of them yeah. um, and these are guys who are doing a lot of time some have just started getting out of prison um, there's a guy mark staley who was i actually knew him on styles when he was not in the church house for the right reason okay and he ended up finding God, went to the seminary, and he was when I was the warden at the Hughes unit, he was one of my field ministers, and he's now out. Um, another, another guy, Calvin, got out just a few months ago, Calvin Green. He's, 
he's doing well. There's just a few of them that have gotten back out. Most of these guys are doing a lot of time. Gotcha. And some of them, their parole officer probably hasn't been born yet. The <laughs> kind of time they're doing. But they are able to minister to every custody level within TDCJ and have access to those offenders. And Does that give some correction officers, uh, do they look at those field ministers as you know, because the field ministers are college graduates, and some of the some of the COs may not be right. Uh, they have access to inmates that other inmates don't have, and some COs don't even have. Does that kind of wear under the skin of some COs? Some COs, yes. Uh, Do you have to? Did you ever have to put fires out? Several times. Yeah, several times, and it's usually some of your most security-minded officers are the ones traditionally that that bothered the most gotcha that makes because sense. they've been around a long time and this is just a completely new concept and it wasn't limited to just correctional officers when the program first started there was some resistance up and down the line yeah but tdcj's administration and leadership did a really good job of selecting the right places to put them initially with the right wardens to kind of smooth the process yeah when you have programs like the field minister program as a warden it's really important that you meet with them regularly and you talk to them and yeah. you find out where these problems exist so that you can take care of them. Gotcha. Because I completely understand correctional officers who, who were worried about it in the beginning, especially, you know, Mark's probably a pretty good example. Putting him back at styles as a field minister might've been rough because some people have been around forever would, would remember yeah. that we always thought he was in the game and that kind of, that kind of, Things, so it would be harder for them to accept that. But putting him somewhere where he didn't have experience with the staff really was successful because yeah. he didn't have that kind of barrier. Whereas, you know, I talk about that, and I hope Mark doesn't mind, but <laughs> he he'd probably be the first to tell you it's true. Yeah. Because he, one of the things about changing is embracing your previous mistakes. Right. Yep. If you can't be transparent with yourself about the mistakes and harm you've caused – then you certainly can't correct that going forward honestly. Yeah, true. You could, you could put on a show, but an honest change, a true true transformation of who you were to who you are, if you're not looking in the mirror and telling the person in the mirror the truth yeah. and accepting the truth they're telling you, then that's going to be hard. Yeah. And Mark is somebody who, who was just his transformation was phenomenal. So outside of the field minister, which was a, a, a wider impact. Right. Uh, were there any, any moments in all of your career where you got to speak into an individual's life and make, make an individual sure. impact for that person? Sure. I'll use my friend Damon okay. as an example. Uh, Damon West, who was an inmate at the Styles Unit when I was an assistant warden. Um, he talks kind of about our experiences in his book, The in Change the book. Agent. Yep, he sure does. And he and I, when I got, I started to say, when I got out of prison, <laughs> when... When I retired, he was living just about 10 minutes away from me. And so I just, you know, I shot him a text. I had his number because he was involved in, in programs with TDCJ after yeah. he paroled. He was pretty quick coming back in as a volunteer. And just shot him things, said, hey, you know, retired. Good luck. Hope everything goes well. And we ended up meeting for lunch. I can't tell my cornbread hustle tale without telling Damon. Right. Because... We maintain that just a friendship, which is unusual for a warden to be friends with one of his former inmates. Absolutely. And, but that speaks also to 
how honest Damon's transformation was from, yeah. from where he was committing crimes in Dallas County and going to prison for 65 years to where he is today, impacting lives every single day. But my interactions with Damon and some of the decisions I made based on getting to know him a little bit in prison, you know, job assignments, housing assignments, that sort of thing, benefited his ability to navigate prison and enabled him when to see a finish line that was actually obtainable. And he ran with that. Yeah, he did. And it's really rare for correctional staff to hear about impact they made. So when he showed up with a book with me in it and gave it to me, <laughs> I was like, you've got to be kidding me, man. Uh, it, it was kind of a surreal feeling. But I think it was more surreal. There was a guy when the Torres Night Complex, you know, the Torres unit is a medium custody kind of hardcore unit, whereas the Nye unit next door is a substance abuse treatment center and pre-release. So they go through pre-sap there. They called me one day from the Nye unit, one of the supervisors called and said, hey, we've got this guy over here named Smith. I'm not making, that's really his last name. Um, and he wants to talk to you. I said, what's his first name? And they told me, I said, you've got to be kidding me. So I go over and it was a guy who was on close custody at McConnell when I was a sergeant and lieutenant. Mm was on close custody at Conley when I was a major, who was at Stiles while I was at Stiles as an assistant warden. And this guy was, you know, we were contemporaries. We both went to prison in 1991, um, had been around each other throughout, and it was a rocky relationship. But he wanted to tell me thank you. That's what he wanted. He was about to go home, and he was like, if you had not wow. treated me fairly, when you didn't have to, when you could have gotten away with not being fair, I couldn't have done what I've done. And I wasn't the only one who provided him that opportunity. But those are the guys that you you always are really surprised by because I guess it's like when you have a, a child, and I hope nobody takes that analogy wrong, but if you have a child who is more resistant to discipline, kind of hard-headed, doing their own thing. You're looking at one. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and then they suddenly – all the things you told them throughout the years hits them when they're 25 years old yeah. and they start going the right direction. That's when you know you have done it correctly because you didn't see a change that lasted a month and then they were right back to what they were doing. You saw a gradual change that's going to last forever and impact future generations because anybody they work or they are around once they're released yeah. is going to be impacted by how they behave. So and I told my mom, I said, mom, you know, cause they blame my mom and dad blame themselves for me being an alcoholic, going to prison at five DWIs. And it wasn't until September 18th, 2003, when I got into a fight out in the fields in the host squad and got locked up in ADSEG, spent right. eight, eight days there. But that first day uh, was when I just started bawling, crying at the end of the first day, crying. And then God just affirmed all the gifts and callings he had over my life and but that first day, everything's stripped away. You know, I have no no property. Right. I'm down in my boxers because I got into a fight, so I have no clothes yet. So I'm laying there all day just in my boxers, nothing else in my room, no rights, no nothing, and nothing except everything that was on the inside of me. Right. All the seeds that were sown by my parents, my Christian teachers, my coaches, everything that was 
sown into me all the train up your child in a way. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. Yes. That was my old moment. That was when I became old because that's when every, that's when I let all the seeds because that's all I had left. Right. Rise up to the surface, begin to be watered by my tears and the grace of God and just start to take root. And that was when, that was when my mom knew that me coming back to my senses was a permanent change not a not a year change and then I'm back out right. drinking again because I'd done that I back in left church back in church party back in church party back in church but then she knew at that point and and that's what I tell parents everywhere look train up a child mm-hmm. but at some point he may depart right <laughs> he may depart from those things you trained him up in but when he's old and I like to substitute the word old for mature when he matures in his faith in his mind in his senses in his heart whatever then he won't depart from, you know, so you didn't do anything wrong because right. of, the, of the departure. You didn't, parents think because they depart, they messed up. No, you didn't do anything wrong. Just keep sowing seeds because the That's departure it. is going to take, is going to take place at some point, whether it's a mild departure or a big departure like mine. Right. But you know, don't, don't worry. Have faith that one day your son, you know, I told my mom, your son is going to run into whatever and be, be locked up and in, 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 in be in a situation where, He's going to see those seeds for what they are. Yes. You know, and, uh, I firmly believe that. So those were the impacts that I really take the most pride in. Yeah. So, you know, I, Damon, I don't take credit for Damon's uh, ability to succeed at all. I made some decisions that helped him. He was going to be successful period. No matter what Damon was faced with, he was going to make it happen. But Smith, on the other hand, different story. He, he didn't have some of the same advantages. Yeah. He wasn't going back to the same kind of environment. Um, he had been locked up. It had to be scary for him. I'm sure he'd been locked up since 1991 and this was 2017 or 18. Mm. So, you know, he, he'd been in prison his entire adult life Mm. and the humility, which is something he didn't have before the humility to be able to tell somebody who'd been an adversary. Thank you. Right. You know, I appreciate what you did. That was true change. Nice. And he's still out in the streets That's doing cool. well. Um, need to get him on background check podcast. I know. Right. Need to reconnect with him. He's, he's interesting. He's interesting. You might have to edit. I'm sorry. I'd have to edit <laughs> that show. Some, but that story, I talked to a guy that got out not long ago. Um, another guy, Brandon Warren shot me a message and said, Hey, this guy wants to talk to you. And of course, I recognized the name. I, I knew him s- several different units. I was like, "Yeah, give me his phone number, man. I'll give him a call." So, and I did. And it was the same kind of thing, you know. It was just, "Hey, so cool." So those moments, and a lot of those moments weren't created just from when I was a warden. You know, those moments grew because I knew them when I was a sergeant or a lieutenant, and then again later in my career and later in their their journey. So as I moved around the state, and they moved around. It sounds like 100,000, 150,000 inmates is a lot of inmates, but most of those come and go right. pretty quickly. Yep. Whereas the offenders who stay locked up for a very long time is a much smaller number. Yeah, because at it, one point, I did the research, at one point we were letting, this is pre, pre-COVID, mm-hmm. we were letting about 69,000 out 
uh, of prison on parole each year right. and adding to about 69,000 right. every year. So the, the number, the total number stayed the same. It grew a little bit each year, but for the most part, about 70,000 right. were let out and about 70,000 were let in. Exactly. So, so that, that core group that's going to be in prison for the majority of their life is smaller. Yeah. So if you do a full career on big units, you yeah. know, the large population, busy kind of units, you're going to run into them repeatedly. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that I didn't mind running into them repeatedly, of course, you always have the certain individuals who are like, oh, okay. <laughs> but, you yep. know, but it was when their kids started coming in. Right. And I started running uh, into their kids that I think that really impacted me. Yeah. Let me ask you this. You retired in January of 2020. Mm-hmm. So you did not get to uh, facilitate COVID. I didn't. So did you get a lot of text messages? Did you, did you, uh, you you know, like, did you keep up with what was going on? How, gosh, I just can't imagine how hard that was. You know, first of all, you're shutting down all the volunteers. Yes. And that, that is going to immediately affect the the mental, spiritual capacity of everybody. Um, You know, as far as you know, (coughs) as far as you know, were there, were there more, did did fights increase? Did, did the temperature get hotter on? I mean, what was... I think it depended on what facility it was because what they also had to cancel was visitation. Right. And visitation is one of the best management tools there is because you don't have to manage them. They don't want to lose the visits. Right. So that, that is a huge. And not only is it a management tool for y'all, it's also a huge, has a huge mental uh, and morale impact on the inmate. Exactly. It keeps them going. So, uh, so that, man, what did some of your warden friends, I mean, did they reach out to you and go, man, this sucks? You know, this, <laughs> that was pretty much the words. Uh, of course, all the procedures that had to be implemented during that, yeah. all the testing, uh, temperature taking, every day coming in, the facility, just the number of staff and inmates who got sick and having to deal with that. It was a nightmare for them. Yeah. And their ability to navigate that really speaks to the professionalism of right. the folks in those positions. I mean, it was obvious they got caught off guard at first, but mm-hmm. after a couple of months, they, they figured it out and they're like, okay, I think, I think, and they, they did, they did well. They did. They did yeah. very, they did so. very well at adapting to a really tough situation and, and making it pretty successful. I, as far as additional incidents, you know, I don't have anything other than anecdotal information on that. Um, of course, anytime that people are isolated, your mental health problems are going to go up. So you worry about the number of suicides. You worry, worry about number of self mutilations, because um, that is a actually a thing in prison. Yeah, and it's not always a, a tool of manipulation. Many times it's real. So you worry about that. You also worry about your staff have family getting yeah. sick. Your staff have family dying. Well, there was how many and, how many uh, TDCJ employees that oh, lost their lives? I, I don't remember what the I was keeping up to. with it's it at huge. one time uh, on on the website. Right. They put the number up again the other day on a post. Okay. Um, uh, during Correctional Officer Memorial Week. I know there was a couple so, that, you know, just from going in all these years, I've been out 16 oh yeah. years. So I've been going in and I actually, um, you know, recognized a couple of names that lost their lives. And it, right. was, it was tough, especially one guy at the Hutchins unit. Yeah, there were several that I worked with throughout the years that we lost to it. You got to the point you almost hated to open Facebook yeah. or answer a text message that somebody you haven't talked to in a long time suddenly texts you and you're like, uh-oh. So a couple of questions before we, before we close, if you, if you could knowing knowing what you know now, all these years of, of being at TC, if there was something, one thing that somebody came to you and said, okay, you can change one thing about our, our prison systems. 
what money's no object, time is no object. You can change one thing. What what would that be? I'm going to give you a point. And it could be procedural. It could be any, anything. I mean, I think that I would probably give a little more day-to-day control back to the facility wardens. Okay. Um, a lot of that as times have changed. I know there will be a lot of people who listen to that and cringe, but if you're choosing the right people to be in those positions and give them the ability to impact daily and not dictate what they have to do each day and how many hours they have to answer a phone call right. and just the, the numerous things that, that happen, I think it would be that. But if you talk on a larger scale, if you talk about impacting the criminal justice system, because prisons, in my opinion, prisons are a finish line. By the time somebody reaches that place, there have been failures that started many times years and years and years before. Very few people hit prison the first time they're impacted by the criminal justice system. Very few people hit prison the first time they acted up in first grade. I think as a society that if we want to impact that, we've got to address it in three places, really. But all of those are impacted by one place, which is your legislature. We have to have some sort of early intervention that is meaningful. Right. And I'll That's go back. important. It is. Because and there's a lot of early intervention that is just doing absolutely no good. Oh, it's a no show. Good. Yep. It's just a show is what it is. You know, we want to feel good. And if you talk about the politician, they want to be elected the next time. And short-term results get attention because it's right here, right now in front of you. And generational change takes exactly that, a generation. So finding, finding the elected official who's going to not just introduce legislation that creates generational change, but finding other politicians who will jump on and support that, especially when it's something that may be perceived as uh, social justice right, or right. too liberal. And I'm, I'm far from liberal. My political opinions vary depending on the topic you're talking about. You could label me as a liberal on some things like criminal justice. You yeah. could label me as a conservative if you're talking about I'm money. the same way. So in the beginning, I think we've, we've got to start at that earlier age. And I'll go back to Damon. You know, his Mr. Coffee Bean Foundation is addressing that on a small scale yeah. starting off yeah. through education and, and introducing African-American male teachers into inner city schools yeah. or struggling schools because it's been shown that that is something that can be effective. Right. So you hit it there. You talk about prisons. If you want prisons to be truly places of rehabilitation rather than warehouses, then the legislation has to exist, especially through budgets, to provide for the programs that can be effective in doing that. And programs can't, cannot be designed to look good. Um, some prison ministries, uh, it's kind of like a, a flash mob. They run in. They do this really cool show real fast, and then they run back out, and you don't hear from them again till a year later when they want to come back in. And for obvious reasons, I will call no names. Then you have others, and I will call names, like Kairos or Axe, that they have programs before the main program, before the right. all the flashy stuff and the good meals. Then they have the program, and then they have an aftercare. And that has to exist, not just in the prison setting, but it needs to exist once they're released. There has to be 
some sort of resource there that continues to support so if good. you want it to be effective. So good. And then on the back end, which is what we do with Cornbread Hustle, you know, Sherry Garcia is a visionary. When she started this, and she she's real self-deprecating. Yep. She doesn't pump herself up, and she should because she's a remarkable woman. And otherwise, you wouldn't have this old 51-year-old retired <laughs> prison guard working for a 35-year-old entrepreneur, right? Um, but it's going to take eliminating or certainly reducing some of those barriers that exist on reentry. You know, the big three, housing, employment, transportation. By some responsible, and I, for once I won't, I won't blame elected officials, it really is going to take responsible and committed companies yeah. that deal in housing and employment to positively impact that. You know, when you look at the statistics of let's forget about the guy who's getting out of prison. Let's not worry about him. He is he made his mistakes. He is what he is. Let's let's take that view of it at this moment, which isn't the view I take, but I, just for argument's sake, let's f- take him completely out of the equation and whether he's comfortable in life after he gets out or not. So we don't care. We're going to go the route of the Clinton crime bill and just not worry about him. But the statistics show that his children, most of them, are going to live in poverty. Mm-hmm. And poverty increases the chance that they're going to become involved in the criminal justice system by at least one-third, probably more. More, yeah, I would agree. But then the fact that they're the child of somebody who is or was incarcerated increases that percentage even more. So we deny opportunity because a five-year sentence in reality can become a life sentence for somebody mm-hmm. because of the barriers that are created. They're going to make 40% less over their lifetime after release than they did prior to incarceration for people who were employed before incarceration. So they are not able to provide for their kids in the way that they should be provided for. And the only way to truly combat that, it's not through social programs, in my opinion. It's not through additional funding to whatever. It's going to be through responsible corporate partners that want to make a difference in communities. And for that difference to be generational and not just today. You know, I want changes to still be happening. I'm 51 years old, so I can expect, if everything goes right, to make it another 30, 35 years, right? (laughs) So... I want those changes to still be happening when I'm gone. Yeah. You know, which was kind of my goal. I got asked one time by a guy I worked with. He was, he was mad at me at the moment, but we're great friends today. <laughs> and he said, well, Darren, what is your legacy going to be when you retire? And I was a major at the time. And that question impacted me. Yeah. It, I, I was having an impact then on people. I think I was creating a legacy, a better legacy for some than others. You know, opinions will vary, I'm sure. Um, but what you want when you retire from there is if you've done it right, it is the people you've impacted on both sides of, of the line, you know, whether they're in white or whether they're in gray for Texas is, did you create the environment where they learned? Yeah. Did you create the environment where they can not just take what you taught them and put it to use, but do, can they take what you taught them and make it better? Right. Can they, can they improve upon what you did? I'm not selfish of the product I created at all. Um, and the product being feeding into people and giving leadership lessons. And, and, you know, sometimes that means 
being supportive and sometimes it means being supportive through disciplinary measures, however, however it had to go. But can those lessons be not just utilized without me there? And can they do it without my influence? Yeah. Because my influence still exists. And that to me is the kind of social impact we need when you talk about, talk about programs that can impact communities if you're talking for those who were incarcerated, is this program going to not just put food on the table today? You know, the, the Bible story, the parable of, of fishes and loaves. Yep. Are you going to give them just a fish or are you going to feed everybody and continue to feed them? You know, because I could, I can go somewhere in Dallas right now and find somebody that needs $20 and give them $20 and walk away and feel like I have done a great yep. thing. You know, Hey, and that's a very popular thing to do. Right. And, and it makes, and the people pat themselves on the back right. when they do that. I'm going to, I'm going to take my kids to the soup kitchen on Thanksgiving. So they see how good they have it. That's yep. really what that boils down to. It's not so that this person who is struggling with mental illness and with the barriers that, that are some self-imposed and some imposed by society through legislation that hammers them on the head on the front end and then just leaves the hammer laying on their forehead for yep. the rest of their life. You know, you need people and responsible corporate partners who don't have to feel good about themselves. They don't need attention from what they're doing. If they're getting attention, you know, it, I go back to Sherry. Sherry's reluctant a lot of times to do shows and that sort of thing because she is very aware of how that can be perceived if you right. brag about yourself yep. too much. And I am too. So you have to walk that line of awareness and bragging. Yep. <laughs> because I, I certainly want people to be aware of what we do and why we do it and what we envision for the future. But I don't need them all to send me a message on LinkedIn saying, <laughs> Hey, I think, I think you're doing great things. You know, that's, that's not how I'm going to define myself. I need you to talk myself. to so-and-so for me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, I've always, I've always said when I had opportunities to address large groups of correctional officers or especially supervisors, that while I've, I enjoyed my career, I think having people who do enjoy that career for the right reasons is extremely important to the success yes. of people who get out. Yes. But... I don't have to be remembered for that. Yeah. If I if I've Same. done if I've done this whole life thing right, yeah. when I die, the marker on my grave isn't going to say was a great warden, right? Or did a great job at Cornbread Hustle, you know. That if I've done it correctly, what it's going to say is beloved husband, father, son and friend and mentor without any mention of how I did it. Because if I've done it correctly, I will live on my thoughts, my processes, my my influence will live on for generations. So good. And I'm not talking about just anybody. You know, that's there's a, if you want to stay alive in people's minds, they don't have to know your name. Yep. They just have to benefit from what you did while yep. you were here, while Absolutely. you were blessed with life. So that is my goal. And if a couple months down the road something happens that that enables me to further that and I have to take a little different route to do it, then that's, that's how I'll do that. Yeah. Because while I really feel my career was impactful on a lot of levels, I think it would have been a wasted career if I did not take what I learned from it and the access I gained from it and the credibility yeah. to further communities, to Absolutely. further our society. Absolutely. 
So, so good. It, and I can't be a politician because I, <laughs> I would not last at all. I, I, I would oh, probably man. make people mad at everywhere because I'm, I just kind of tell you what I think without navigating whether you're going to feel good about it yeah. or not. So two people I want you to, two groups of people I'd like for you to address before we go. Number one is uh, somebody who's thinking about getting in corrections or already in corrections. Um, what would you say to them about their role as a correction officer at any level, entry level, senior warden, whatever? What would you say to them if they're listening and go, man, am I do? And what I is what I'm doing making an impact? Can I make an impact if they're if they're trying to get into it? Should I do it? You know, uh, what are some things I should or shouldn't know before I get into it? But speak to that group of people in in correct and specifically not just all law enforcement but specifically corrections and uh you know speak to them and and give them um encouragement real quick the very first thing i would say is do not go into a job as a correctional officer thinking that you're going in as a chaplain or a counselor that's good because security is your first priority safety and security so you will be telling people no you have to be self-aware enough to know your weaknesses and work through those. If you have trouble saying no to somebody at the grocery store, prison's probably not for you. <laughs> so good. Be- so true. So true. It is. You know, it's because if you can't get the if you can't get past the security part first, you're not going to last. You're not to even have an impact on somebody else in the future. Right. So that's a priority. Get the security part first, and then. God or somebody, a warden, will open up a door for you to make an impact in yes. a different way. Is don't don't go in with the goal that you're going to change a life every day. While potentially you could, most of those changes occur from you doing what the agency you work for needs you to do. Following processes, creating a safe environment, not letting bad things happen to people who you're responsible for, addressing things that happen that are wrong. Yeah. If you don't, if you don't have the courage to address somebody who's doing wrong, then you're not going to have the strength to support somebody that's doing right. So good. Wow. Um, I would also, for a lot of people, I would want to point out the difference between a do-gooder and somebody who does good. In my opinion, a do-gooder is somebody who wants to change the world, but has no idea what they're facing. Mm. Whereas somebody who does good wants there to be positive impact but understands the challenges they're facing and has the courage to face those challenges. And as soon as it gets hard, they're not going to jump back out. They're going to continue moving forward and understanding that not every day when you, when you are trying to make an impact, every day is not going to be a great day. You're not going to come home every single day and go, man, I I can't wait to do that again tomorrow. Cause some days you're going to come home and go, I can't believe I survived that. Wow. And, or, or wondering if you even want to go back in tomorrow. <laughs> there are days like that. You know, for me, there was very few. I enjoyed getting up and going to work every day. I retired sooner than I intended to. Yeah. And that was because I had to have my third back surgery. Yeah. So prison was not the environment for me. After the third time the doctor has to put me back together, I don't, I don't need to save in that from environment. COVID, though. It saved it you did. from COVID. <laughs> it did. And if that hadn't happened, my relationship with Damon would not have progressed the way it yeah. did because it, I wouldn't have been meeting him for lunch as a TDCJ employee. I wouldn't. While as a warden, it probably wouldn't have raised too many eyebrows. It would raise enough yep. that it could, it could look like oh, there yeah. was some impropriety there. Yep. And I was very conscious of that. 
So my relationship with him wouldn't have progressed, which means that he would never have introduced me to Sherry. Yeah. And if I hadn't been introduced to Sherry, I would not have the ability to impact people through employment or the platform to do things like come on your yeah, po- podcast absolutely, absolutely. so that it spreads the word. And, you know, we need to change the narrative. Yeah. We need to go from punishment, punishment, punishment to realistic punishment and rehabilitation that can be meaningful. Is it going to take for everybody? No. You know, I used to tell people, I think there's a difference between punishment and discipline. Yes. You know, uh, punishment sometimes, you know, can just be labeled cruel and unusual, uh, for no reason, you know, you just get punished and, 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 but discipline has a different, has a different mindset. Right. And, And when you can, when you can apply discipline over punishment, and the person receiving that discipline understands the difference between discipline and punishment, then I think rehabilitation actually can occur. But if all we do is punitive instead of something like discipline that, that leads to rehabilitation, then we're just putting people in cages, you know, that's it. And I do that with my dog every day before I leave the house. Right. You know, see that I guess I have a more European view of dogs because ours have just roam. <laughs> you well, ours them. is still a puppy. Oh, so okay. We're still fully, not go. fully potty trained yet, so ours gotcha. is still a puppy. Uh, so the last group of people I want you to talk to are are, are inmates listening to this podcast. Great. Uh, right now there's a bunch of them, 150 to 200,000 all over the nation, jails and prisons, and then they've rolled out some units in, in Texas. Wonderful. So speak to the inmate, and I don't know, just, you know, Somehow let them know that, that where they are doesn't have to define who they are, you know, and whether they're spending life in prison without parole or whether they're going to get out, you know, this year, you know, give them, give them hope and give them right. courage from a warden, somebody who typically the typical inmate will think that doesn't care about them at all. You know, first I would say, don't consider yourself from the victim perspective, whether, whether you believe, if you believe that you are a victim of your circumstances whether those circumstances were imposed on you or whether they're of your own creation, then you're going to stay mired down. Your past is your past. Um, there, as the saying goes, there is a reason why the windshield's bigger than the, the mirror looking back because what's in front of you is so much larger. However, you cannot have an expectation that there's going to be people just absolutely bending over backward to make it happen for you. The only way it's going to happen is if you take control of your own life, if you accept responsibility for not just the decisions you've made in the past, we're already there. You already, you're already suffering from that. Take responsibility for the decisions you're going to make Mm, down the road, because those decisions are going to impact not just if you succeed, but it's going to impact those around you. Consider getting out of the day rooms, and so good. all the drama involved in the day room or the rec yard, wherever, go to the rec yard and run laps, do what you got to do, and then go back to the house and read a book, go to the library, take every class that's offered that you're eligible to take. So good. Go to church, whether, I don't care which flavor you choose, choose your flavor and go. Those are the things that are going to enable you. If you have an opportunity to speak to employers through job fairs, that sort of thing, don't go in with the mindset that nobody's going to hire you or that it's still a year before you get out, so you shouldn't bother. Go make those connections then. 
come up with good questions to ask people yeah. on what you can do for th- for them to want to help you because they many times second chance employers are going to be inundated with people with backgrounds yep because the word spreads pretty quickly these folks will hire you and they pay decently so what have you done and what are you continuing to do to better yourself so that you are a commodity and you stand out from that's all it. the other ones. Yeah, that's it. And do not try to paint over what, what happened in the past, what you were convicted of embrace that as part of you because it, it is. And if one of the quickest ways at cornbread hustle that we're going to say, no, we don't have a job for you is if you come in and try to lie to us about your background, you know, all of our recruiters have been incarcerated at least five years. I'm, I'm like one of two guys in the company who has never been incarcerated, but I spent my whole adulthood in prison. So you're not going to shock us. And if you're not transparent with us who are trying to help, then... How can you expect how, them to be transparent with the company it, you're trying to connect exactly. them with? Exactly. Yeah. And we rely on our brand name to sell you to those companies, yeah. to sell your skills, to give you that opportunity. If our brand suffers because we're helping people who are just trying to get their PO off their back instead of actually want to make a change, then we're not going to be able to help anyone. That's true. And that's not just us. Why will an employer choose you over somebody else if that person is actively in recovery, they're open about it, they know what they did, and they have a plan for never doing it again, and they're willing to share that plan. So that's the best advice I can give you. That's awesome. From me. Yeah. Well, Mr. Wallace, Darren, Warden, <laughs> it was an honor. I, I never, when I started this podcast, never dreamed I'd be sitting across interviewing a former uh, retired warden, but uh, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for letting us do a background check on you. You passed. Uh, so um, thank you again for carving the time out for us and pour, for all the years you poured into inmates in your 28 years, and thank you for what you're doing for parolees and those in recovery now we we really appreciate you and um and and hope that you do have the the, whatever the 30 years you you want to live longer even more uh because we need people like you with the mindset you have with the heart you have to uh to recognize that there are some of us that have made some mistakes in the past that aren't bad people we just made bad decisions at some point and and if given another opportunity to succeed that we will we'll take it by the by the reins and and drive it in uh to success and so thanks again for all you've done for tdcj and for cornbread hustle and uh we we appreciate you thank you i appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today it's been great man it was a great interview um i i I don't even want to try to highlight too many good parts because they're all good parts but listen Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you, Darren, for taking the time out to give us give us some perspective from a warden's point of view. Thank you, and uh, it's really it it really is neat to know that somebody who's been in the system that long didn't develop such a hard heart towards inmates. He acknowledged, you know, the reality of of some inmates, but he did not develop such a hard heart that he treated everybody the same and 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 treated them with just this disdain that most society looks at uh, as far as criminals. So um, I I thought it was pretty good. And thank you, Mr. Wallace, for coming on and sharing your heart with us. 
And uh, thank you guys for listening. And uh, we will see you next week. Damon West is going to be on the show. So Damon West, the one that just was at the Styles unit when uh, when he got into the fight, and uh, and and Darren, you know, talked to him and told him he he made that statement to him, you know, and, and Damon talks about it in his book. So next week Damon's going to be on, and he talks about that that part too. So uh, great couple of weeks, man. Maybe share the word, spread it around that that um, uh, that that Damon's going to be on. It's going to be a good one. We'll see y'all next week. Okay, so I can't say goodbye without praying over Darren Wallace. So, Father, we just thank you for uh, retired warden Darren Wallace, and uh, thank you for all he did in TDCJ and the lives that he poured into. And we pray that you bless him and his family, his wife. Give her everything she needs for her journey. Give them everything they need, healing. Uh, Lord, we just lift them up to you, and we ask you to open doors for them uh, with, through Cornbread Hustle. And uh, we thank you for them, Lord. Thank you for the listeners that are listening. Give them a breakthrough, whatever, wherever they need it. Meet, meet them at their need right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll see you all next week. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Background Check Podcast, brought to you by Forgiven Felons, helping people with a past realize their future. For more information, please visit ForgivenFelons.org. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and please don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss the latest episode. I'm J.D. Gum, and this has been Background Check.